to your word tonight. Lord, we pray let revelation knowledge flow freely, unchecked and uninterrupted by any satanic or demonic force. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed speak to my vocal cords, think to my mind, and me and all of you. We thank you, Lord, for articulation of your heart, for a word in due season. Lord, for everything you'll do, we'd be careful to give you the praise and all the glory. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. We pray for the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation and manifestation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Raymond, you can assume the position back there. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. I'm a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Therefore, I am a fruitful believer. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, we got one part done and uh, working on the other part. <laughs> it's going to take a little more time than uh, I, I, I thought. <clears throat> well, we have been studying, at least if you've been doing your homework, the book of Job this month. And I want to touch on part A of Job uh, tonight and we'll hopefully touch on part B uh, on next week. But I want to mention some areas uh, concerning Job first and foremost because I believe it kind of goes uh, somewhat together with what we've been talking about in the area of offense. Some of the reasons why people don't receive from God or specifically Christians don't receive from God is because of this area of offense. But let's begin here with Job chapter number one. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. I may have already should have read chapter one by now, right? I will say that there are a few uh, books that we will be reading that, you know, some are going to be shorter in limb, longer, some are longer in limb. So, you know, but, but if you're doing your homework, then we're making our way through all books of the Bible. It's just a little slower. I was listening to uh, uh, when I ministered at Greenwood Community Christian Church, and I was talking about that to that congregation and, and said, we're not we're not reading through the Bible in a year as some churches do. Uh, not yet. We're reading a book uh, a month. And so it takes a little bit more time to get through the books. But I want the, the idea, the concept is uh, to digest the word, to comprehend the word. And, and um, that's the goal here. More biblical knowledge of the word. Amen. Now, Job chapter 1 and verse 1 begins with this, and I think this is important for us to take a notice of how this book begins. It is, uh, scholars say that Job is one of, if not the oldest, book in the Bible. It's one of the older books in the Bible. So much so that, you know, it's arguably that Job could fall right behind Genesis to some degree. Because even though it does not fall in in order of its old or or how old it is, it is one. It is considered to be one of the oldest narratives that we have. And there are some things that we understand about Job. There are some things that we simply don't understand about Job in the sense of, you know, where does he fall in the overall chronology of Israel? Where does he fall? Because there are no indications per se of old <clears throat> prophets or you know anything. Where where does this fall exactly? And so there are some things that. Uh, we know some things that we, we speculate in regards to it, 
But I believe the narrative itself is a great illustration of how and what happens when we move to areas where we are suffering, right? So Job chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now notice this, how it begins out of the New Living Translation. He said, there once was a man named Job, Job for some, but Job, who lived in the land of Uz. Notice he says, he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He is a man that is blameless, and it says, a man of complete integrity. Now, it is interesting that this is the first line in this book, and it tells us about this man named Joe based on his character. Now, when people look at your life, the question that we have to ask, what do we know about you first? When the people see you, they see you as a gossip? When people that see you, they see you as, well, she, she has some great leadership capacity? Or do when they see you, they say, well, they are a person that's blameless and has complete integrity. This is how we meet Job. And then it goes on to say, verse uh, number two, he talks about he has seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And he talks about uh, the allotment of sheep that he has. But the reason why I wanted to point out this area, now let me read this out of the voice translation. It says, his character is, his character spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he was, he so believed in God that he sought to honor him in all things. And he says, he deliberately avoided evil in all of his affairs. Again, Setting the stage for where the narrative is going to take us, it first talks about who Job is, where his character is concerned. It doesn't talk, it doesn't begin, like see, verse number two talks about his kids. Verse number three talks about his possessions. But verse number one tells us about his character. Now the way we do things today is we invert this within our society that we would begin talking about Job's stuff, and then we will begin talking about Job's sons and daughters. And then we will begin talking about maybe he walked in a level of character. And this is where we are wrong as a society, that we've inverted what is truly valuable to God. It is the character that you walk in. The character that you walk in is more important than the stuff that you have. The character that you walk in is more important even than the children that you have because you should walk in character so much so that your children recognize that within your life or those people in which you have influence. So once again, Job 1 and verse number 1 out of the voice says, his character was spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he so believed in God that he sought to honor him in all things. He deliberately avoided evil in all his affairs. It was not something he just rolled up on. No, he deliberately, the voice says, avoided evil. Now drop down to verse number six. Verse number six. Now notice this. The scripture then begins to make a shift. It talked about Job, it talked about his character, it talked about his possession, it talked about his family. And it even talked about the fact that Job feared God so much that even when his children, when he thought his children might have done something, he said, let me make another sacrifice for him. 
These are all things that we understand about Job. And then the narrative begins to shift over into the courts of heaven. Notice verse number six out of the New Living Translation. It says this. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. So the members of the heavenly court came before the presence of Almighty God. And the Bible says the accuser, Satan, came with them. And God asked a question in verse number seven, where have you come from? Now, we understand when any time God asks a question, there's a purpose to it because he knows the answer, right? So he says, where you come from, Acts, or the Lord Acts, Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been, and I wanted to use this translation on purpose, because it says, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything uh, that's going on. Notice the word patrolling out of this translation. Another translation says, I've been going to and fro, looking around. What is it about Satan at this point in time that he has the ability to just go around the world looking at stuff? And he utilizes the word patrolling. You ever think in terms of like what police do? They have the authority to patrol neighborhoods, which means go around looking at stuff. Go around checking out areas, right? When we think patrolling, that's what it means. And he utilizes the word, I've been patrolling the earth. Well, what gave him the authority to patrol the earth? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 indicates to us the authority that Adam and Eve walked in. The Amplified says, and God said, let us, Father, Son, out of the Amplified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image, after our likeness. And he says, let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, to tame the beast, and over all the earth and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. Adam and Eve had this authority. They are the ones that God entrusted to patrol the earth, to monitor the earth, to subdue it, right? Genesis chapter 3, they transferred that authority that they had over to a foreign uh, uh, entity named Satan. When he fell in the when in the Garden of Eden, when he when they decided to disobey God and bow their knee to sin, they bowed their knee to the Lord of sin, which was Satan. So, in essence, what we see in the book of Job is that he's saying the reason why I'm checking out the earth is because Adam and Eve are the ones that gave me the right to be here. The reason why, when all the heavenly courts, all the angels are showing up. And you got the member from earth shows up as well and says, I'm here with him. It's because that's the position that Adam and Eve fell from. You remember in Ephesians where the Bible says he seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's because that's the restoration of the position that we have within, that we're supposed to be in the audience in the court with Almighty God as our Heavenly Father. But in this situation, they were foreign from that. They were away from that. And the devil had some rights and some abilities. Verse number eight. Y'all with me?
Correct. That's correct. I couldn't say it no better. Look at verse number eight now. As the narrative continues on, it says, Then the Lord said, or the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. And it repeats what we saw in verse number one. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. So we see verse number eight is exactly almost identical to what we see explained about Job and his character in the beginning. God saying this about Job. I wonder when God talks about you, what does he say? <laughs> when, when, when the devil showed up and said some things to God, is, is God going to be like, uh, don't consider this one. <laughs> That's just... This is something now. He says about Job, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. This is God speaking about it. Verse number nine. Notice that Satan, unmoved by this statement about Job's integrity, says, Satan replies to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. So he said, all right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But uh, I'll raise you one, God. He says, verse number 10. Notice, you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. Now, verse number 10 should not be glossed over. If you were highlighting in your Bible, I will highlight where it indicates to us what God did. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his uh, around him and his home. So we're talking about personal protection, the best people he's going on the planet. He says around your house, around his house, and around his property. He says, he goes on, he says, you have made him prosper. And everything that he does, look how rich he is. Now in verse number 11, notice he says here, reach out and take away everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. Now, verse number 12 says, all right, you may test him. And the Lord said to Satan, do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And we who have read this know what happened. Satan didn't take no time at all. He went down there and he did a truckload of stuff to Job. Why am I pausing here? Because it's important that we understand the distinction between what God does and what Satan does. And a lot of times when it comes to Job, there is this misinterpretation because one of the things you need to notice about Job chapter 1 is that everything that happens in heaven, Job is unaware of. There is nothing that says that Job is privy to any of this conversation. This is a conversation that we see within this book between God and Satan, which is the accuser, not God, Satan, and Job. 
So as far as Job is concerned, the good came from God, the bad must have came from God too. And so therefore, that's where we get into where he says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that is a statement that is in the Bible, but it is not a statement of fact, because we can just look at what he says here. We see God is the giver. The one that takes away is Satan. Job doesn't know this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's correct. And that is one of the central things that we need to understand about this story and extrapolate it for your life. The good comes from God. But we are in a fallen world where we are subject to the attacks of the enemy. The attacks of the enemy are not originating from God. As we see here, Job knows everything, doesn't know anything about the heavenly encounter. Everything good in Job's life came directly or is directly connected to God. Now the Bible says in Psalms 84 verse 11, we've read this before, he says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly before, uh, that walk uprightly. So he says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. The Bible indicates to us that Joe walked uprightly. Every piece of good that was in his life originates from God. And one of the things we got to make sure that we understand about your own life, everything good that you have originates from God. Sometimes we overlook the good stuff because sometimes the attacks and the issues glare at us a lot bigger than the good stuff. And if you're not careful, you'll begin blaming God for things that he's not the author of. What it does show us within Job chapter number uh, one is verse number 12. Once again, he says, all right, you may test him. That is the part that we don't particularly care for. You may test it. So God did allow the test, but he didn't author the trouble. Y'all with me? Now, what Job didn't know. Uh, let's go down to verse number 20. Verse number 20, I'm going to go to the King James Version because this is traditionally how it's been preached. I know I've heard this growing up. In denominational circles, he says, then Job, after everything happened to Job, he went through all kinds of stuff. He lost everything inside of a day. The Bible says, then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground in worship. So Job does have the right perspective. But he says, I'm yet going to worship God even in the midst of these challenges. In verse 21, it says, and said, naked I came into this world, or uh, naked, I said, naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall uh, return thither. Now this is the statement though. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is a statement, again, it's in the Bible, but it's a statement that Job is saying from a level of ignorance. So much so that I, I said before, you know, came in that we're only going to look at the first part 
tonight and I will put the rest of it together next week because it's really largely this is the central narrative uh, within the book of Job the destruction the issues the first area of calamity that Job experiences is the loss of his possessions the ne- and, and his family the next the devil begins to impact him physically alright but notice the statement that Job makes is a statement that is not based on knowledge of the fact that he's being tested is not a statement based on knowledge of who originated what. Hmm? Now that is a very good question, and it is one that um, there is limited. There, there's, there's many that indicate to us that they had limited understanding of Satan as accuser in the Old Testament. There's revealed things that we understand where we see certain elements of him, but you know where where Jesus encounters Satan in the New Testament, he calls him out by name, Beelzebub, all these kind of things. There is even in the Jewish tradition, there's there's limited knowledge in regards to the devil. And I was thinking about this one day, and I was like, Lord, why is this the case? Well, in the Old Testament, if you think about it, the Bible defines the devil as the little g god of this world. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's not necessarily little g to you. And in the Old Testament, there was only one place on the planet where the presence of God was, and that was in Israel. To everybody else, you were a little bit more powerful than we would suppose. But I asked a professor that as well when I was in school. I was like, you know, what, what is the Jewish perspective of the afterlife? What is the Jewish perspective about the devil? And, and one of the things that he was saying is there was, there's limited. There's limitations in regards to that. Mm-hmm. Well, the commandments and everything, it was a, the righteousness in the Old Testament was an umbrella where if you stayed in it, you were safe. It didn't cover the heart. It only took care of the external areas of your life. And even David talks about he desired a day where his sins would totally be not imputed unto him, which is the day that we live in today. All of these things, I'm pausing on all of these questions. I'm pausing all this stuff because... The issue with Job is we read it and we try to get things that it don't say and apply it and we miss what it's saying that we should apply. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. Now, because Job didn't know about the test, you shouldn't be like Job. <laughs> Okay, Joe couldn't turn over to First Corinthians and get some insight. You can. Okay, so your excuse is gone. Why is all this happening to me? Well, maybe the test in your life was permitted. Why was the test permitted then within our lives? First Corinthians chapter ten gives us guidelines. I'm going to read this out of King James, then we're going to read this out of the Amplified. <clears throat> I'll 
again, we are New Testament believers that have the Spirit of God on the inside of us. We shouldn't be like Job, written our clothes off, saying, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay? That's not your position. God's the author of the good, the bad in my life may be an attack. The, the bad that's in my life may be the result of a spiritual attack. It may be the result of bad decisions where I negated to listen to the voice of God. It may be the result of words that have a harvest attached to it, where you begin speaking death to your life, and God says, I have to permit this in your life because then you permitted that to come out of your mouth. Okay? We'll talk about all three of those at another time. You're looking to be funny now. <laughs> the bad in your life may be a result of a spiritual attack. Yes, that is true. It may be. But one of the things I've noticed with Christians is some of these declared spiritual warfare are just bad decisions. Some of these declared spiritual warfare are a harvest of seeds sown by words that have been coming out of your mouth speaking death to your life instead of life to your life. And you get to a point in your life where God says, no, I have to allow it because death and life is in the power of the tongue. You've been speaking death to that situation for years. And he says, all right, well, you got to have a harvest of this. I don't know why nothing good ever happens to me. Well, you said nothing good ever happens to you. You've been saying that for the last five years. There has to be a harvest attached to that. Well, I tell you what, we go out here and we drive and everything, it'd be just like me. We're going to get in an accident. So I'm like, well, you've been speaking death to your life. Instead of filling your mouth with good, so God has to permit certain things within your life. And what happens is, a lot of times, when you've been doing this and you've been speaking death in your life, you've not been speaking words in agreement with God's word, you see a harvest and you say, well, I'm under spiritual attack. No, sometimes it's just a harvest of what you've been sowing. Some people, in a, in a very practical way as well, they speak negative to co-workers. They speak negative to the family members. Speak negative to everybody. They can't figure out why nobody loves them. It's a harvest. <laughs> yeah. this, this, this ain't no spiritual warfare that you're going through. The devil is attacking. No, this is you. <laughs> okay? But you do have the other two where you have a situation where, yes, you do have genuine spiritual warfare that takes place. Okay, that does happen. But one of the things, like I said, I've noticed that a lot of Christians, what we define as spiritual warfare, may not be spiritual warfare in the sense that you think. Some of them can be, like I said, spiritual warfare or bad decisions that you've been making. God's been telling you, he's been telling you, you had no peace about what you did, but you decided to do it anyway. You didn't have no agreement about what you did, you decided to do it anyway. And you reap a harvest of bad decisions. You can't go around and say, we well, see the Lord is testing. No, the Lord was trying to tell you don't go that way. But you didn't listen. So don't say I'm just like Job. Job didn't do nothing wrong yet. Okay, he did not do anything wrong. God says, because of his integrity, because he walked before me, he says, I'm allowing a test within his life. Because that's essentially what the book of Job is saying. The devil said, all right, I see who he is that you say he is, but I demand a test of his character. Now notice this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, once again. When this happens in our life, these are the rules. 
These are the rules as New Testament believers that we should know in regards to every single test and trial that we are faced with. Genuine spiritual warfare. He says, I'm going to read this out of the King James and I'm going to read this out of the Classic Amplified. He says, there is no temptation. There is no temptation. Test of trial is the word temptation. Taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. He says, but with the temptation, with the test of trial, also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. The Amplified Version of the Bible says it like this. For no temptation, no trial regarding or, or no trial regarded as enticing to sin. No matter how it comes or where it leads, has overtaken you and laid hold on you that is not common to man. That means the devil cannot test you with something that nobody else has ever gone through. These are rules. Can be no foreign thing that nobody has ever experienced. A couple things that that does, it removes your excuse. Well, Lord, nobody nobody had to deal with alcoholism in my family. Yeah, well, somebody else has overcome that. Well, Lord, nobody had to deal with another area of addiction. In my, well, somebody else that's a believer has and they've overcome it. There's nothing that the devil is permitted to, to test you with. That's foreign. Another translation says foreign to the human experience. He goes on and says, watch this. Next rule, common to men, that is no temptation or trial has come to you that is beyond human resistance. There is nothing, no trial that comes to you that is beyond your ability to stand. And he says, and that is not adjusted and adapted and be a belonging to human experience and, uh, and such uh, as man can bear. In other words, there's nothing that the enemy is permitted to test or, or trial that's able to come in your life that is above your capacity to handle this. Now, notice how it goes on. It says, but God is faithful. And that is important that we always remember. He's faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature. And he can be trusted not to let you be tempted or tried or saved beyond your ability and strength to resist, uh, uh, strength of resistance and the power to endure. If the test is presented within our life, it is only presented within our life if you have the capacity to win. So backing up to Job. I don't know how far we get to the other stuff. <laughs> Backing up to the book of Job. That's the reason why I pointed out what did God say about Job is important. God said some things. He said, that, that's my man right there. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of character. In other words, I know my man can overcome this. That's why the test can be allowed. Everything that's in your life, every challenge that's in your life, it, it would not be allowed to exist if you didn't have the capacity to overcome it. 
He goes on to say it's light apart, but with the temptation. So for every temptation, there is something that goes with it. He says he will always, always, he will always also provide a way out. <clears throat> the means of escape, a landing place that ye or you may be capable and strong and powerful to bear up under it patiently. So he says, all right, for every test and every trial that you go through, you must have the capacity to overcome it. He says, for every test and every trial that you go through, he says, additionally, there has to be a life option with the test. You say, well, I don't see that. He says, now the test, when it's presented to you, there's always an exit plan. There's a strategy. There's something that's going to get you to the other side. But he also says, until you get there, he gives you the capacity to patiently endure. Yes, exactly. It, 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 it's coming, but there's some patience. And, and that patience is one of those pesky fruits of the Spirit once again. Amen? Praise the Lord. All right, that's Job chapter number one uh, covered. And we're going to look at the latter part of Job uh, uh, next week. But it's important, again, if you look at Job and you go into the book of Job and you take it wrong, you won't get the lessons that the book is teaching us. You're not immune from issues. You're not. You need to discern where the issues are coming from. Once again, is it a fruit of your mouth? Is it a harvest of those words that you've been speaking? Is it wrong decisions where you disregarded God's voice? Or is it a genuine spiritual attack? Very good. All right, so let's look back here at offense, huh? <laughs> Sweet close out. Offense. We've been talking about offense. If you haven't heard the other part, well, good. You have to go back. It's on YouTube. Okay? All right, so we look at number five. The fifth reason why people fail to receive is because of this area of offense. Anybody can tell me the definition at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. To hit, to wound. <laughs> Offend, to offense. Offense means to hit. It means to wound. It means to attack. It means to sin against. It means, uh, uh, it does mean to attack. It means upset or the upset or hurt feelings or emotions. It means an annoyance or uh, resentment brought about by a perceived insult. Offense is one of those areas that will pre prevent you from receiving from God. And we've looked at how to handle offense in pertaining to uh, uh, the, within the church, right? You remember that? Yes, amen. Shout about it. <laughs> okay. And now we are looking at specifically how to deal with uh, offense where it pertains to non-believers. We've also indicated to you a non-believer doesn't necessarily mean someone that's not born again. A non-believer can simply be a fleshy Christian or a spiritually immature Christian. My definition of a fleshy Christian is a person that is unlearned or unrenewed in the posture and the practice of the new birth, yet um, has a desire to grow. Now, you can have an immature, really that's an immature Christian. The desire to grow should be there. And they might be resistant to that desire to grow because they're deciding to live in carnality. But if I don't know if there is no fruit of a desire to grow within the heart of the person, I got to ask the question that you're born again. 
Don't have time to proof text that tonight. But if there is nothing on the inside of you that makes you want to seek after God, we got to question whether or not you have a relationship or you simply have religion. Okay? All right. Now, let's turn back again in our two passages, one in Romans chapter 12 and Matthew chapter number 5. I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight because of how we've covered this. Matthew chapter 5, let's start there in fact. Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. We've been looking back and forth between Romans chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 5 looking at uh, what the Apostle Paul was saying in regards to dealing with folks. And then we've been back during it to some degree of what Jesus actually said. But let's look, let's begin here with what Jesus said. And I think it's important because I want to put this back in a larger context. And I think it's important. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter number five. Let's look at verse number nine. I'm going to, we, let me see if we can put all this together. Because I can't review everything tonight. We said number one. Uh, he says, bless those that persecute you. Number two, we said, never repay evil with retaliation. Number three, we talked about where we left off on Sunday. Live at peace if possible. Live at peace with as possible. Now, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his sermon on the mountain. He has begun with what is known as the beatitude. Blessed are this. Blessed are that. Once again, reading out of the New Living Translation, verse number 9 which is where we looked at, for he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they uh, shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. And Romans chapter 18, verse uh, 12, verse 18 says, If possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Jesus says blessing or the blessing of God is on those that are peacemakers. And I got to thinking about that um, this afternoon because we usually gloss over that peacemakers. And we say, yeah, amen, amen, because I've done it. Yeah, yeah, glory to God, that's good. What is a peacemaker? It's a Bible study, it's a question. And mediator is a good good answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Someone to seek out the peace. Okay. Got it. All right. Because what y'all are saying is exactly what my original thought was, right? And all of that's true. Yes. Amen. But. Let me read this out of the Amplified. The Amplified version of the Bible says this, Blessed, spiritually calm, with life joy in God's favor are the makers and maintainers of peace. For they will express his character and be called his sons or be called the sons of God. The Amplified breaks it open a little bit more. It says, it says makers, but it says maintainers of peace. When people look at your life, are you one that brings the peace with them? 
or are you one that stirs up stuff? Because <laughs> he says there's a blessing on those that maintain the peace. Instead of, you got to see the opposite, those that stir up strife. Yeah, I know you're working people like to stir up stuff. They, all they, that's all they do is stir up stuff. Jesus says you are not to be like that. Now let's look at the context once again, how he's talking. He says, I'm, let me, I know I'm flipping over many translations. Bear with me. Let's continue over in the New Living Translation. He says, verse 9, God blesses those who work for peace. So it breaks it open again. What am I working for? To get back? The pettiness? Or am I working for peace? He says, they will be called the ones that work for peace. So you got to look at it again. What is the opposite? Those that don't work for peace are not called the children of God. He says, those that work for peace or maintain peace are children of God. When he looks at our life, are we ones that stir up stuff or are we ones that bring peace into an environment? Good. He goes on to say, since you enjoyed that, God blesses <laughs> God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So these two scriptures, again, this is, this is one sermon. He says, blessed are the peacemaker. And he says, God blesses those who are persecuted, which means that's going to happen at times. Thinking not strange. He says, verse 11, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my follower. Now, that sounds like a test and a trial, right? But when you have it in your life, we just read, if it shows up in your life, you have the capacity to overcome it. Keep going. Verse number 12. He says, be happy about it. And that's why I read this translation. Be, be what now, Jesus? He, be happy about it. Be happy about it, he says. Be very glad for a great reward, reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. In other words, he's saying in this section of his sermon, he says, this is not uncommon to the human experience. Oh, ain't nobody been persecuted like me. I heard, I heard some <clears throat> candidates say this. The most persecuted man. Are you? Verse number 13. Again, sometimes because I, it's easier to do this in Bible study, let's put this together. Once again, we in the same sermon. He then shifts and he says, you are the salt of the earth. He says, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? He says, it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are intended to go into places to give it flavor. But not your flavor, his flavor. <laughs> Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lamp, no one lights a lamp 
and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Once again, all this is in context. <laughs> but what oftentimes happens is Christian people, blood-bought people, devotion people that spend time with God, say, God, if you would just send me to lit areas, there I would be happy. I got a light, they got a light. It can be really, really bright in the building. And God's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't think you understand how lamps work. I put light in the midst of darkness to illuminate me. Yet you keep praying for an exit when he puts you in a situation, perhaps, to be light. That's why it's so dark. Once again, all of this is in his context. Again, he's preaching the same message. He says, verse 6 is in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. When I let my good deeds shine out for all to see, he says, so everyone will praise, not you, but your heavenly father. Number three, as we said, at, um, uh, number three was to live at peace if possible. I am not attempting to live at peace because, you know, I'm just trying to get along with them so they shut up. <laughs> okay? I'm living at peace with you because I want my light to shine in darkened spaces. When I choose to do things God's way instead of getting in my flesh, God gets the glory out of my life. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Let's finish here, I guess, tonight. As we will not be concluding this subject this evening. Philippians chapter 2. Lord, if we can move beyond the fence. Huh? Philippians. I push on, we're going to be here for a little while. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Once again, let me get this out of the Amplified Version of the Bible as well. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Scripture says, I, the King James, let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The King James, uh, the Amplified says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit through fractional motives or strife. When I start examining why I'm doing what I'm doing, what am I doing it for? Stir up stuff? What's my motivation? He says, but with an attitude of humility. Again, humility is one of those things that that a lot of us talk about, but we really don't fully understand what it means. Because in the traditional church, when we say, well, you got to be humble, usually they're talking about 
operating in an area that's below the grace of God. And they said, well, you know, I'm just a nobody. God didn't call you nobody. You're going too far. Okay? He called you a son and a daughter. Well, I'm just out here, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a sinner saved by grace. You can't be a sinner and saved by grace. You're either saved by grace or you as a sinner. Okay? Yeah. Is that a hand or is that a... Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. You, those two dispositions can't coexist. Again, the traditional church would say, all right, to be humble, y'all got to be humble, means to fall below what God has called you to be. That's not what he's saying. But to be in meekness means that I am submitting myself to a greater source or greater power. I am going to check my pride at the door and do things God's way. That's really what it means to be humble. Another translated word also means to be meek. So it breaks it out real good here. He says, he says um, but with an attitude of humility or an attitude of it ain't always about me. He says, being neither arrogant nor self-righteous. Yeah, you might be doing the right thing, but watch your motives now. Because <laughs> it's easy to slide into right, uh, an area of self-righteousness and say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, hope, I hope the Lord do get you. Mm-hmm. You little sin for self. Man, now you moved into self-righteous and you're just as wrong as, you, as they are. <laughs> okay? So humility, once again, he says humility, neither arrogant nor self-righteous regard others as more important than yourself. That is your definition then. True humility regards other people as more than they do themselves. It's not just about you and your needs and what you have to do. God, what is your desire for this situation? And God, not only what is your desire for this situation, what is your desire for these folks that I don't even like, but yet you still love them? What's, what, what, what's in your heart? I'm not here to stir up issues. He says, verse number four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He says, verse five, have the same attitude in yourself as uh, yourself, which was in Christ Jesus. Look to him as your example of selfless humility. For though he was, he existed in the form and unchangeable essence of God as one, as one with him, possessing the fullness of the divine attributes. And then so he goes on to say, even though Jesus had every ability to walk around and say, I am the son of God. He didn't. He humbled himself. And so when I humble myself in areas where I know my pride has been hit, I am displaying I'm a child of God. When I say, all right, when I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do my best, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of trial, to make peace. This is a challenge at times because to be a person or a peacemaker at times means I got to make peace even when I feel on the inside of me. Look now. Here's the get back. And smile a little bit if they do fall. (laughs) Something happened to them. I got to set all that aside to have the heart of God, which is once again, 
God, you love people that are even doing me wrong. And every test, every trial that's permitted within my life, the only reason why it's permitted is because with the test, there's a way out. With the test, there is the ability for me to overcome it. Let us pray. Questions? Comments? Well, we've been on the fence for a little while. <laughs> and, uh, and I cannot tell you that I did not anticipate, I mean, I mean we, there's five points. And, and I thought we were going to get there tonight. But maybe on Sunday, amen. <laughs> we're on number three. But praise the Lord. Let's not walk in offense, amen. Father God, in the authority of the name of Jesus, Lord, we bless you for this opportunity that you presented for us to exemplify our sonship and our, our daughtership, if you will. That we choose, God, your ways, your methodologies over our own pride. God, we choose humility over, over operating in the get back. God, because we desire to be displayed children, and not once you got put over in the shelf somewhere because we ain't got no act right. Lord, so we just ask that you continue to cultivate these fruit of the Spirit on the inside of us. And as you do so, Lord, we thank you for clarity of your voice within our lives, clarity of your directions, clarity of how to even keep our mouth closed so that we don't get into areas of sin. Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, everyone did say, Amen. We will pick up... Uh, there, well, let me, let me show you one more spot. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And verse number 26. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. It says... <clears throat> And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down on your, the King James says raffle, let the sun go down while you are still angry. It's important that you will, your emotions sometimes get hit with anger and you get upset. But you got to be careful in regards to that, that you don't allow anger to control you, moving you into a position of sin. This is why, once again, we're talking about a transparent relationship with God where you say, Lord, I'm mad, I'm mad now. I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm, look now. I got to take that before God. And he says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. He says, for anger, verse 27, gives a foothold to the devil. And so when God begins to deal with you in areas of your anger, it's because he sees that if you let that seed, you are giving the devil a foothold in the situation and you're negating his ability to get you to the other side. So that's why we got to watch when, we, when we're angry. 
we don't stew. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let it stew. A couple weeks ago, we all saw some some, some Mandingos, some some, some Wakandan folks hop off boats. Because they were angry. And now they're passing out charges. And I looked at that. I had a, one of my brothers ask me while I was out of town, what, what do I think about it? I don't know. Now my black side say, you know. <laughs> okay? But my, my Christian side says, all right, you know, we, we got to figure out a better situation. Don't, you might be angry. And, and he was, you know, they were angry. Don't allow your anger to move you into areas of sin because you're giving a foothold to the devil. All right, that's it. We'll see you on Sunday. God bless. All right. It's recorded on one. It's just not streaming.